You know, one of my great heroes of the faith is uh, a four foot three woman named Lottie Moon. Lottie Moon lived during the latter part of the 1800s and into the early parts of the 1900s. Uh, In fact, I'm such a fan of Lottie Moon that our family named a family member after Lottie. In fact, I think I've got a picture I want to show you of Lottie. (laughs) This is is our dog, Lottie. I think she's the best. She's a wonder dog, greatest dog ever. I'll fight you over it. I'm telling you, she's the best. Love Lottie. We also have a second dog. This This is Spurgeon. Don't want to leave him out. There's Spurgeon. So yes, I'm very much a Baptist preacher. Lottie and Spurgeon. Okay. All right. But but let me show you a picture of Lottie Moon. This is uh, Lottie who for almost four decades gave herself to the people of China, longing to see people come to a saving knowledge of the gospel. This is a woman who grew up in great wealth in Virginia, and she came to faith in Christ and had a heart to see all people come to a saving knowledge of the Lord. And so she set sail, went to China, where she gave her life there, living a life of hardship and suffering. She would regularly write letters to the foreign mission board, words of rebuke towards the Southern Baptist churches, their apathy and their lack of engagement. She would, towards the end of her life, empty her bank account and use it all towards feeding the hungry to the point she gave her food away. At the age of 72, she weighed 50 pounds. As her life was coming to a close, the church there in China wanted to send her to a place where she could recover, and so they put her on a ship to come back to the United States. But before that ship left the harbor of Kobe, Japan, on Christmas Day, excuse me, Christmas Eve of 1912, she passed away went on to glory. A woman who gave her life so that people might come to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Lottie is one of countless thousands of men and women who truly believe that the gospel is for all. And that is what we see being driven home in Acts chapter 10. Let me show you. Grab your Bible and turn with me to Acts chapter 10. We're going through the book of Acts together as a faith family. And we've come to chapter 10 where there is a significant pivot in the narrative. Simon Peter has continued his itinerant ministry of traveling from town to town, preaching the gospel and healing all throughout Judea. We saw last week where Peter is staying at the home of Simon the Tanner in the city of Joppa, a city on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. He has a vision of a sheet being lowered from the sky with clean and unclean animals on the sheet. And the Lord told Peter, get up, kill and eat. But this news was baffling to Peter for such a command goes against Jewish dietary laws. We saw last week that under the old covenant, Jews were not to eat certain kinds of foods for their dietary habits would set them apart from the people around them. They would be different. They would be, they would be set apart from everyone else. But when Jesus came, the law was not abolished. The law was fulfilled. And so now all foods are clean. 
And with Simon Peter sitting on the roof, still unclear of what this vision meant, I want you to see what happens next in the text. And in Acts chapter 10, beginning with verse 17, the scripture says this. While Peter was deeply perplexed about what the vision he had seen might mean, right away the men who had been sent by Cornelius, having asked directions to Simon's house, stood at the gate. They called out, asking if Simon, who was also named Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was thinking about the vision, the Spirit told him, Three men are here looking for you. Get up, go downstairs, and go with them, with no doubts at all, because I have sent them. Then Peter went down to the men and said, Here I am, the one you're looking for. What's the reason you're here? They said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who has a good reputation with the whole Jewish nation, was divinely directed by a holy angel to call you to this house and to hear a message from you. Peter then invited them in and gave them lodging. The next day he got up and set out with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa went with him. The following day he entered Caesarea. Now Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him, fell at his feet, and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up and said, Stand up, I myself am also a man. While talking with him, he went in and found a large gathering of people. Peter said to them, You know it's forbidden for a Jewish man to associate with or visit a foreigner. But God has shown me that I must not call any person impure or unclean. That's why I came without any objection when I was sent for. So may I ask you why you sent for me? Cornelius replied, Four days ago at this hour, at three in the afternoon, I was praying in my house. Just then a man in dazzling clothing stood before me and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your acts of charity have been remembered in God's sight. Therefore, send someone to Joppa and invite Simon here, who is also named Peter. He is lodging in Simon the Tanner's house by the sea. So I immediately sent for you, and it was good of you to come. So now we are all in the presence of God to hear everything you have been commanded by the Lord. Peter began to speak. Now I truly understand that God doesn't show favoritism. But in every nation, the person who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. He sent the message to the Israelites proclaiming the good news of peace through Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. You know the events that took place throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John preached. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power and how he went about doing good and healing all who were under the tyranny of the devil because God was with him. We ourselves are witnesses of everything he did in both the Judean country and in Jerusalem, and yet they killed him by hanging him on a tree. God raised up this man on the third day and caused him to be, to be seen. Do people like awkward silences? <clears throat> I love embarrassing moments. It's very humbling. <clears throat> what a gift. 
We ourselves are witnesses of everything he did in both the Judean country and in Jerusalem. And yet they killed him by hanging him on a tree. God raised up this man on the third day and caused him to be seen, not by all the people, but by us, whom God appointed as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify, testify about him, that through his name, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. In Acts 10, yes, that'd be great. Thank you, DMAC. You are the man. Thank you, buddy. In Acts chapter 10, we see where God orchestrates a meeting between Simon Peter, a Jewish Christ follower, and Cornelius, a Gentile God-fearer. And through this divine encounter, the gospel tears down the walls of separation between Jews and Gentiles. And this text points to the two groups becoming one in Christ. And as I think about our congregation and who we are as God's people living at such a time as this, at this moment in history, that there are people that God desires to reach with the gospel through you. What I want you to notice in the text this morning is how the Great Commission is lived out through Simon Peter and how you and I can go and do likewise. The first thing I want you to see in the text is that we have somewhere to go with the gospel. We have somewhere to go with the gospel. While Peter is perplexed over this vision of the sheet coming down from the sky filled with clean and unclean animals and the Lord's command to kill and eat, Cornelius' servants knock on the, on the door of Simon the Tanner. And what a great reminder we see here in the text that the Lord always knows where we are. The Lord always knows where you are. I love this. Here we see where God ordains, he coordinates, he executes, he orchestrates his plans and purposes to take Peter and bring him into the very presence of Cornelius. These people, they show up to see Peter. And though Cornelius, their boss, is the one who sent them, we see right there, verse 20, God says, I sent them. Beloved, God always knows where you are. And he also simultaneously, providentially, and intentionally puts you in the path of other people so that you might show and tell the gospel. We see verse 5, God tells Cornelius, send men to Joppa for Peter. He's at Simon the Tanner's house by the sea. Verse 17, the timing of the vision is just in time for Cornelius' entourage to arrive. Then verse 19, the Spirit tells Peter, there are three men here looking for you. Go with them for I have sent them. God sends, we go. God orchestrates the details, we follow his Lead. Indeed, church family, we have somewhere to go with the gospel. We have been sent with the purpose. What's the purpose? Verse 22, to hear a message. Well, what's the message that Peter is going to take to Cornelius and the Gentiles? It's the gospel. 
that God desires all people everywhere to come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And so he divinely, providentially orders circumstances so that people might be introduced to Jesus through his people. And beloved, God has put people in your path, in your life, in which you get to tell them the good news of the gospel. Can you imagine that if you had in your back pocket on a note card, the antidote that would cure cancer? What would you do with that? I know what I would do. I'd make a beeline to all the people I know, friends and family who have cancer. And I would say, take this and you will be healed. And now you're thinking, how can I get this into the hands of as many cancer patients as possible so that they can be healed? Well, church family, we have in our hands the antidote to eternal death. We have the scriptures, we have the word of God, which points us to the gospel that is the antidote, which sets people free from sin and death and hell and the grave. You are in possession of the most priceless and precious message the world has ever heard. You are in possession of something that sets people free from an eternity separated from God. And we have before us a lost world that is in desperate need of the message that you have. It's in your possession. If you're a follower of Jesus today, you hold the most precious and priceless message and we have somewhere to go with this message. You see, the gospel message motivates believers' feet to get moving. That we've got something that's got to get out to the nations and to our neighbors. The only way you and I fail is if we keep the message to ourselves. At this message that God has given to us, this message of reconciliation, that we can be made right with God through faith in Jesus Christ, is something that motivates us to go. We see where Peter, he gets up and he goes. He makes the 40-mile jaunt from Joppa to Caesarea. Why? Because he wants this gospel message to go forth. I love how William Carey, first American missionary to India, he said it like this, to know the will of God. We need an open Bible and an open map. And y'all, your mission field begins right where you are. The place where you work are people who don't know Jesus. And God has strategically planted you there to engage them with the gospel to point them to Jesus. Right now, maybe in your mind, you're already thinking of coworkers in your life who don't know Jesus. And maybe you're sitting here thinking, man, how can I reach my coworkers with the gospel? What if you started a Bible study at lunchtime and said, hey guys, every Tuesday at lunchtime, we're gonna meet in the break room and we're gonna read just through the gospel of John. And we're just gonna read a chapter and we're gonna discuss it and we're gonna pray. And that's a way you start introducing the gospel it's a way you start looking to engage coworkers with, enable, with, your, with, with your coworkers. You're engaging the gospel with your coworkers. Right now, God has strategically placed you in your apartment building or in your neighborhood. And around you are people who are far from God, people who do not know Jesus. And God has planted you there so that you might be a witness. You might declare the message. Maybe it's inviting people over to your house for a meal and saying, we don't know you very well. We want to build a relationship, get to know you. But you're looking to leverage that relationship for the gospel. Maybe uh, for you, it's at the ball field. Man, man, you've got teammates in which there are people who 
are, who are on your team who don't know the Lord. And you want to leverage that for the sake of the gospel. This is, this is my heart. Right now I'm coaching two soccer teams. Uh, I've got third grade girls, and that's an effort of sanctification. <laughs> and I'm coaching uh, sixth grade boys. And, and I love it. And, and, and this is a mission field that God has given to me in which I get to shape young lives, but I'm there to plant seeds of the gospel. Yes, I can use my soccer acumen to teach them how to kick a ball, but there's something bigger. There's a greater purpose behind you being at your workplace, on your ball team, in your neighborhood. God has strategically placed you there. You have somewhere to go with the gospel. And yes, and amen, we are to be a people who are going to the nations. In fact, I'm, I, I, this is going to come soon, but we're, we're looking at how we as a church can be more effective at getting the gospel to the nations. And that's coming soon. But we can't do it to the neglect of where God has planted us even here and now. That God has put people in your life right now who are far from him and God wants to use you to reach them with the gospel. You see, your mission field begins where you live, where you work, and where you play. That's your mission field right now. And though one day God may call some of us to the nations, he certainly called you to your neighborhood, to your workplace, to the ball field, where you play, the tennis courts, the basketball court, the gym, Starbucks, wherever you go, man, the place where you get to shine the light of the gospel. We have somewhere to go with the gospel. But the second thing I want you to see in the text is that we have someone to see about the gospel. We have someone to see about the gospel. The next day, Peter arrives in Caesarea, and not only is Cornelius expectant and eager for Peter's arrival, but he has invited people to come, right? So you can see the picture. Cornelius, he realizes, man, this guy Peter is about to come to my house. I want as many people as possible in the room, right? So we verse 27, a large gathering of people. He wants people in the room, the people he knows the best, people he loves the most. He gets them in the room so they can hear the greatest message they have ever heard. There's an urgency to this. He desires to get people into the room so that they might hear the gospel. And while simultaneously, we as a, as a church, we are a going church, yes and amen, but also wants to be a church where you can invite people to gather. We want people in the room where they can hear the gospel. And I hope you know, after being your pastor for, oh, golly, a long time, I'm not going to say anything crazy. When we gather, we're going to shine a spotlight on Jesus. We're going to make much of Christ. I'm not going to make you have to apologize or go to a lunch all sheepish saying, I can't believe the pastor said that. I want you to know when I take that stewardship very seriously because I want people to hear the gospel, the good news of what God has done by sending his son who came and bled and died for us on the cross, who was buried and rose again to give eternal life to all who trust in him by faith. This is Cornelius here. He wants as many people in the room so that they might engage people with the gospel. That he might reach people to hear this important message that's about to come from the lips of Peter. And so for us as a church, for us to continue to grow in health and in faithfulness, I need to get your eyes up. You're looking for people you don't know, inviting them. Hey, I don't know you. Please forgive me. I do this all the time. I met a family this morning. I said, hey, I'm Kenneth. I don't know if I've met you yet. And they said, that's okay. I said, how long have y'all been here? About a year and a half. I was like, ah, okay, great. 
I had to humble myself. I'm so sorry. Please tell me your names. And I get to know they're from Kalir, a young family, and I build a relationship. We have to be willing to do that, y'all. Approach people you don't know, and it's okay. And when they say, I've been here since the beginning, 42 years ago, <laughs> you can say, I'm so sorry. Please forgive me. Can, you, can we get coffee? Right. We want people to gather together around the gospel. You're looking to invite people to your small group. You're looking to engage people for lunch and coffee and breakfast. We're building community here. Why? We want people to be together, rounded around the gospel. We want people to fall in love with Jesus. Can I say to you, people aren't looking for a friendly church. They're looking for friends. They're looking for people they can build relationships and community with. And we've got to keep improving on that as a church in which we're engaging people to be, hey, come get, get in on this. You're invited. Why? Because God has included us in the gospel. That God does not stiff arm us. He doesn't create this exclusive club saying you can't get on this. The gospel is open to everybody. And we want people to know him. We want people to be in the room to hear the gospel. This week, uh, Christy and I had some furniture uh, delivered. Hey, Peyton, how are you, buddy? Hey, I look for my Bible. Look at your Bible? Okay. I'll tell you what. Can we look for it later? Is that okay? Sure. Is that okay? Oh, Chris, my wife has it right there. She's awesome. She is awesome. <laughs> She's the best. You are the man, Peyton. Love you, brother. Or, uh, can, you can get a new wife. No, no, that ain't happening, bro. <laughs> I love it. Hey, Peyton, have a seat, my friend. Can you sit down for me? I love you, brother. You are the best. Thank you. This week, church family, we had um, some people deliver furniture to our house, and both of them were Hispanic, and one of them did not speak any English, and one of them spoke a little bit in Paquito. And so, um, and so I, was, I was trying to talk to him, and I just said, hey, do you guys live close by here? And they said, the guy who speaks English, he goes, yeah, we live nearby. And I said, awesome. So I pulled out two invitations to a Hispanic Bible study that Pastor Pipe leads. And I said, I want you to be a part of this. What am I doing? I want them in the room. I want them to hear the gospel. As Cornelius is gathering this family and friends together to hear the gospel, this is what we do as followers of Jesus. We invite people to get in on this, to gather and to rally around the gospel. You see, the church is not for a specific ethnicity or race. The church is made up of a diverse group of people who come from various backgrounds, but we're united together around the gospel. We're a bunch of people whose lives have been changed by Jesus. Not a single one of us has achieved perfection. Not a single one of us has gotten to the point in which we no longer need grace and growth and repentance and forgiveness. And yet we're together because we're people madly in love with the Savior who loved us first in the gospel. And here is Peter in which one of the first things he does, verse 28, is he calls out his own prejudice. He says, you know, it's forbidden for me, a Jew, to hang out with you Gentiles, but God has shown me I was wrong. What's he referencing? He's going back to the vision of the sheet coming down with the clean and the unclean animals. And then he's pointing to this picture of the Jews and the Gentiles coming together as one group. It's the church. And Westwood, the gospel is for all. And we must not discriminate over who can get in on this. That the gospel is exclusive to Jesus Christ, but it's inclusive to the whole world. Anybody can get in 
on this good news. And you see, God has always had a heart for the nations. This is not just a Matthew 28 um, movement that Jesus is trying to create that multi-ethnos, the, all the people groups of the earth can get in on this. It's always been God's heart. You go to Genesis 12, Abraham was an idol worshiper in Ur until the Lord appeared to him. You look at the prophet Elijah, where the Lord rises him up as a prophet who during a famine, he goes to a Gentile widow, a pagan Gentile in a pagan land, and God sends him to her. We see this in the life and ministry of Elisha. Here's a man where there are many lepers throughout the days of Israel, but God sends him to Naaman, a Syrian soldier, an enemy of the Lord's people. We see where God sent Jonah to Nineveh, Gentiles, so that he might show them the power of his mercy available to anybody who believes. Psalm 96.3 says, declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous deeds among all peoples. God has always had a heart for Gentiles, but we see it in the life and ministry of Jesus. When Jesus encountered a Roman centurion, someone just like Cornelius, Back in Matthew 8, Jesus says, I'll go to your house and I'll be happy to heal your servant. And the, the, this man says, I'm not worthy for you to come to my house. But if you just say the word, Jesus, my servant will be healed. In Matthew 8, 10, Jesus said, truly, I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with so great a faith. In Mark 5, Jesus went to the Gentile side of the Sea of Galilee where he encountered a man possessed by demons. Jesus heals the man. The demons are cast out of him into the pigs. They go into the Sea of Galilee. And this man's life has been changed by Jesus. He begs Jesus, can I please follow you wherever you go? And Jesus says, no, I want you to, Mark 5, 19, go home to your own people and report to them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And the scripture says the man left Jesus and he went throughout the Decapolis, the 10 Gentile cities. And what is he doing? This guy, Jesus, has changed my life. He starts preaching Jesus and telling these Gentiles about how God loves them. And he has sent his son into the world. We see all throughout the Apostle Paul's ministry in which he's continually pointing to Jews and Gentiles who can get in on this gospel. Y'all, we have someone to see about the gospel. There's someone in your life who needs Jesus and God has appointed you to be the witness and the messenger of this great news. So we see in the text, we have somewhere to go with the gospel. We have someone to see about the gospel. But thirdly, we have something to tell, which is the gospel. With Cornelius, his family and friends gathered around, sitting on the edges of their seats, the presence of God resting on their gathering, eager to hear what Peter has to say, Peter preaches the gospel. He begins by calling out how God is impartial. God doesn't play favorites. Peter's realizing how narrow-minded he's been against Gentiles. And we'll see later in Galatians, he's still got a ways to go in that. But indeed, the gospel is for all people. Verse 35, in every nation, the person who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to God. 
Now, it began with Israel, verse 36. He sent the message to the Israelites, but this message is for everybody. What's the message? Look at verse 36. It's the good news of peace through Jesus Christ. This is the great news, that God and man are no longer at war. That Romans 6, we're no longer enemies of God. You see, because of sin, God was was an enemy of us and we were his enemies. So there had to be someone who could bring peace. Someone who could represent both. Enter Jesus of Nazareth, who was 100% God and 100% man. And through his death on the cross, he made peace between God and man. That Jesus is the mediator between God and men. That through Jesus, all of God's wrath towards our sin was placed upon Jesus. That at the cross, all of our sin was placed upon Jesus. And so now we're no longer enemies of God, but friends of God through faith in Christ. Jesus is that mediator through whom we have peace with God. That when you come to Christ, he is the one who not only is your bridge to the Lord, he is the one who is your peace with God. Not only that, the scripture says, verse 36, he is Lord of all. You see, when you make a declaration that Jesus is Lord, it's a theological treatise that every king, every government, And every person is not Lord over all. Jesus is Lord over all. When Christ's followers in the first three centuries under the Roman Empire, if they said Jesus is Lord, that was treason. That was punishable by death. You see, in the Roman culture, there was a slogan, Caesar is Lord. He was God one of many gods. And so for for a Christian to declare that Jesus is Lord, it was a direct affront to the passing earthly kingdoms. That there is a new and greater king, there is an eternal kingdom, and my allegiance is not first to Caesar. My allegiance first is to the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the Lord Jesus Christ. To declare Jesus is Lord was a statement that puts your life in jeopardy. And here Peter is making clear to this Roman centurion, this Jesus is Lord over all. But also notice how Peter shares the gospel. I kind of outlined it in your notes here. The work of Jesus in the gospel. We see Jesus' life, verses 37 through 39. Peter describes Jesus' life, beginning with his baptism with John, the Holy Spirit's anointing, and how God used him in his earthly ministry. We then see Jesus' death. Verse 39, they killed him by hanging him on a tree. Jesus was murdered and he was nailed to a cross. The cross is where the sins of the world was laid upon the Lamb of God who takes away those sins. But death could not hold him. We see verse 40 and 41, Jesus' resurrection. That God, verse 40, raised up this man on the third day. That Jesus is victorious over death and there is proof of his resurrection. That he appeared to people. We see he was seen, verse 40, 
He ate and drank with people, including Peter, who's the one preaching right now. Jesus proved that he defeated death because you could touch him. He was eating. He was drinking. He was seen by people that this guy who was dead is now alive. And there was proof of it. And indeed, the whole world is going to be held accountable this coming. And he's going to judge the living and the dead that no one can run, no one can hide, no one can escape his final judgment. Nobody. People can deny and mock and reject Jesus all they want, but they cannot avoid the final day of judgment where all things are laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus took our judgment. That Jesus took your hell. That Jesus took your place at the cross. You no longer have to fear the future of what could happen to you because the worst possible thing that could ever happen to you has already happened. It happened to Jesus on your behalf. So now you are hidden in Christ and you can have confidence that when you stand before God, you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. That you have a king who stands as your defense attorney. You have someone who stands before the Father and says, this one is not guilty because he or she belongs to me. You belong to Jesus. If you are in Christ, you don't have to fear that because this king bled and died and rose again and defeated death and he treasures you. And he says, I'm gonna be with you even to the end of the age. So Kenneth, what do we do with this? What are you calling us to? It's your impact point, it's this. I'm challenging our church. Invite people to believe upon Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. That's what we see in verse 43. That anyone who believes upon Jesus, you are forgiven of your sins. Maybe you're here today and you're thinking, man, there's so much junk in my past. There's so many things I've done and said, things I've thought. There's no way God can forgive me. The cross is God's proof that he can forgive anybody who trusts in his son. You can be forgiven. You can be washed and made clean. Maybe you're here today and you're someone who continually is holding fast to old sins. You're in Christ, but you still feel the weight of your shame. May I say that Lord does not shame you with your past. He doesn't rub your face in your past. He doesn't belittle you or mock you. He calls you by your name. He says, you belong to me and I love you and I will be with you and you are mine and you now bear my name. You're now a follower of Christ. And so we call people all over the world, beginning right where we are, to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Lottie Moon wrote a stinging rebuke of churches in her day in which she wrote these words, the harvest is very great, the laborers owe so few. Why does the Southern Baptist Church lag behind in this great work? A young man should ask himself not if it is his duty to go to the heathen, but if he may dare stay at home. The command is so plain, go. Westwood, the gospel is for all. Let's be found faithful in getting the gospel to the nations 
and our neighbors for the glory of King Jesus.